0: Uh, it's absolutely necessary that a small business needs to have a marketing strategy and to also you know have a bit of a sales mindset um, I, and I don't think it needs to be have this lens of being pushy um, you know I really love this common thread that you have throughout your po- podcasts of like know and trust yes. and um, you know, that's what sales and marketing, to be honest, is really all about. Welcome to the Marketing Your Practice podcast. We're leading a healthcare revolution by showing natural health and fitness experts how to become
1: community influencers so they can build profitable, predictable and enjoyable practices. And now your hosts, Angus Pike and Tony Rose. Dr. Angus mm-hmm. Pike here from the Marketing Your Practice podcast podcast. And I'm joined today with the Marketing Director of Metagenics Australia and New Zealand, Paula Hand. Paula, welcome to the show.
0: Thanks, Angus. Good to be here.
1: It's lovely to, uh, to have you here. Now, you've been at Metagenics what probably seems like a lifetime for you since 2001 and probably had, it would seem, almost every job, including kind of, you know, cleaning the bathrooms and stuff there, all the way up to kind of managing director now. Can you tell our audience a little bit about your journey of what's taken from when you started all the way up until now?
0: Yeah, sure. So um, I actually started, as you said, it um, in my intro in 2001. Prior to that, I had a history in sales, but I'd always had this real passion for health. And so I left my job in sales to study naturopathy. And so I was a struggling student there for a couple of years. And then I saw this job for metagenics. I was living in Adelaide at the time. And I thought, wow, this is this perfect union of my a love of sales and my, my love of natural health. And so I took on the role of sales, um, area sales manager in Adelaide in 2001 and I worked in sales for about three years. So I worked in Adelaide for 18 months and then I was given the opportunity to transfer to Queensland and I worked in Queensland for about 18 months. And then the sales and marketing director at the time, Graham Joyner, offered me the opportunity To move into marketing in head office. And I said to Graham at the time, you know, are you sure about this? Because um, my background is not in marketing, I'm a salesperson. And he said, no, Paula, you know our products, you know our practitioners, I really think you can do it. So that was a huge learning curve for me. I was on a very, very steep learning curve, but worked with amazing people, um, learned a lot, was in marketing. For most of my career here, so for about 13 years, and um, just progressed and eventually, a couple of years or a few years ago, was um, promoted onto the executive team. And then at the start of last year, I was asked to take on the managing director's role, which again was just a I never expected that in a million years. It's not something that I ever had on my vision board that I want to be the managing director one day. So it was a huge surprise and, and honor um and so i've been in that in this role now for nearly 18 months it's been amazing been a really great journey surrounded by really great people i've just been really blessed i think to have opportunities along the way and to work with fantastic people and learn a lot
1: many um many of the listeners uh, you know we're small business owners from naturopaths to chinese med practitioners to chiropractors you know, when you talk about sales and then, you know, having a love for sales but then, you know, not knowing much about marketing, what's the difference between sales and marketing?
0: Yeah, that's a very, very good question. I think sales is more about the execution and um, marketing is more about the strategy, the overall strategy where you want to go.
1: And then what, what sort of skills did you need to develop to step from that sales into the marketing? You said you had a great team around you. What were the kind of skills that you needed to to sort of step into that?
0: Um, Yeah, wow, that's a good question. Um, I think I did need to really learn to think more strategically. Um, It was a big move, even just moving from in sales, you're out on the road, you're, you know, talking to to clients and practitioners and um, you're kind of a bit of a free spirit in some ways and it was... For a start, it was very hard just to get used to working within an office environment where you're working really closely with collaborating with different departments. I think in marketing, the other thing that's really important is that um, sales and marketing should work hand in glove anyway. It should be very, very tight relationship. Um, But in marketing, you really do need to collaborate with a lot of different departments. And so for myself here, it was around really getting to know the regulatory department because there's obviously a lot of regulatory restrictions in what you can say in marketing, so working really closely with that team. Um, We're continuing to work really closely with sales because they're at um, you know the coalface. They're the ones who are dealing with the practitioners. They have a huge amount of insights, and so it's about working really closely with that team as well. And then also with our technical team here at Metagenics because, again, they're the guys on the phone. They're getting a lot of feedback from practitioners and they're also you know, the, the brains behind it all as well. So I think it was a matter of trying to draw all of those things in together as a marketer <clears throat> and then come up with um, the plans for how we were going to, to then execute.
1: Mm. There, um, there tends to be, you know, when I'm talking with kind of peers and stuff, but there tends to be a real fear in around sales and marketing for us as practitioners. You know, we're buying into this concept that if I just help people get well, that's all I need to do. And that sales and marketing is that kind of thing for people who are not good at what they do or it's all pushy or it's all sleazy, those kind of things there. What's your experience mm-hmm. with that? What, like, You know, does, does sales and marketing have to be pushy? Does it have to be sleazy? Um, you know, what what advice would you kind of give to our listeners with regards to is it necessary that a small business be doing that?
0: Uh, It's absolutely necessary that a small business needs to have a marketing strategy and to also, you know, have a bit of a sales mindset. Um, And I don't think it needs to be, have this lens of being pushy. Um, You know, I really love this common thread that you have throughout your podcasts of like, know and trust. Yes. And, um, you know, that's what sales and marketing, to be honest, is really all about. Marketing is about... Making sure that people do actually get to know you um, and that you have that authenticity and so in sales it's exactly the same it's about forming trusted partnerships and that's what we 've been about at Metagenic and it certainly is having very authentic relationships and trusted partnerships with our practitioners mm. and for a practitioner, it should be the same with their patient that you know they're really just trying to get the very best outcome for their patients and you shouldn't be apologetic about that when you're developing your marketing plan and when you're thinking about, you know, your elevator script or your, um, or your sales script. Mm. Um, you know, you kind of begin with the end in mind, which is the patient outcome. Um, I don't think we should be apologetic about that.
1: Yeah. I think there's never been a better time for us to be small businesses in marketing and sales. I think the the internet has done some really good things in that, really we've moved towards this kind of value-driven marketing. And so if you're really scared and fearful of anything being sales and pushy, then good, because I think you really ought to be. But really, if you can be just sharing information that gets your audience one step closer to the health outcome that they want, and, you know, this concept yeah. of, uh, of influence that Gialdini talks about, of reciprocity, just do lots of nice things for the people in your community, really helps them and I don't have to get into kind of woo-woo type sort of stuff, but that'll re- like it's it's a law of influence. That's what kind of happens when we help people. You know, and metagenics is stunning at that. I, I, there's not a tech support team around the world in another industry that I like calling like the metagenics team. It's like, you know, I need some more information on uh, Mega yeah. um, yeah. I'm putting a workshop together. Yeah. You point you in the direction of some articles. Yes, I'll email them to you this afternoon. Oh. You, you know, yeah, that's I know some things- marketing.
0: Absolutely, Angus. And I think it's about, you know, one of the things that we really talk about here is having is being very, very customer focused. Everything is about the customer. And so that, you know, technical team is a huge investment, but it's about having that resource available for practitioners to be able to call if they have a difficult case. If there's, you know, a patient comes in with a condition that you've just never heard of, you've got a team there that can research that condition for you. If they come in with a list of, you know, all these pharmaceuticals that they're taking, you can contact the tech team and go, wow, I don't know know where to start with this patient. I don't know about contraindications. You've got a team there that can help you. Um, But it's about always approaching it from um, a customer-centred approach and for for practitioners it would be that patient-centred approach and if you approach your sales and marketing plan from what is going to be the best thing for my patient, then you will win every time.
1: Yeah. I think there's a, uh, for me, it took a long time for me to get my head around this because I had a really bad relationship with marketing and sales for a long time until I made the distinction yeah. between influence and manipulation, where manipulation to yeah. me trying to get somebody to do something. It might have been good for me, but probably wasn't good for them, whereas influence to me was... Trying to get a good result for somebody that might have also served me and my business at the same time where it was a win-win type sort of relationship. So
2: Yeah.
1: Yeah. In in your time at Metagenics, one of the big things that you helped to do was oversee the launch of, you know, a couple of public type sort of um, ethical nutrients inner health, those kind of things there too, which I've got to imagine had probably multi-million dollar budgets, well beyond what we would have as a kind of practitioner. Mm -hmm. What did you learn? Then, as far as kind of marketing go, and 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 expanding out to something as big, what, what did you learn from that that might be helpful for us as small businesses?
0: Um, I think one of the things I learned is that um, you really do have to say the message over and over again. It is about that reminder and repeat message. Mm-hmm. So you can't just expect to run a campaign in an ad and then go, oh, that didn't work for me. I'm going to try something different. It's all about repetition. Um, You know, I think that a customer now has to see something nine or ten times before they potentially act on something. Mm. Um, So you do have to be patient. You do have to be willing to invest. You do have to focus on the benefits as well. So rather than, you know, talking about all the features of the different tools that you have and all the fancy things that you do... Focus on the benefit for the patient in in your marketing message Um, and paint a picture, a bright picture of the future. You know, like it's got to be kind of aspirational that, yes, if I take this product or if I go and see this practitioner, my life is going to be better by doing that.
1: Mm. I think um, we see on Facebook now with some of the recent statistics that came out, on average, I think it took around 43 days somebody to go from being completely unaware of who you were online to the stage they were happy making a purchasing decision or in our case that's getting on the phone making an appointment so yeah. we, we need to be consistent with these things it doesn't you know yeah. we've seen great results with you know people just spending a dollar a day hitting the boost button you know providing a piece of content that's helpful to their audience hit the boost button spend a dollar a day but just do that consistent like if you commit to that over the year I mean it's a grand total of $365 it's not a lot of money but it yeah. gives that chance, as we talked about before, for people to kind of know, like, and trust you. So, um, yeah, you,
0: know, you really do have to be in their face all the time. And you do need to test things and, um, and review them. You know, mm-hmm. So try to measure it and try to review what's working and what's not and then tweak it and change it and test something different. So it, even if you only do something very small, But you should definitely do it consistently. But, you know, see if you can work out a way for you to be able to measure um, that message or that marketing um, campaign that you're doing so that you can go, okay, that worked, but maybe if I just change this wording or if I just, um, you know, tweak it a little bit, it might Mm -hmm. work better And test that. So that's the other thing is just um, reviewing and um, measuring And then testing again.
1: How has a company as big as Metagenics gone about with the multi-platforms at the moment, so there's online, in your case there's television and then there's social media platforms, how do you go with saying okay this came from our social media campaign or this came from our television campaign, given that so many times people bounce around, they see an ad, they head to social media, they head to your website. How do you go with attribution? I know it's one of the challenges that, that, that we have here is that something tends to be, over that 43 days, multimodal, it's hard to know what's getting results.
0: Yeah, it is. And, it, I mean, you do have to invest in doing that. It is very difficult, Angus, and you, you do end up spending a lot of marketing dollars and not really knowing exactly what, what proportion of that is working. Um, and that is, that's part of marketing that you just kind of have to put up with to an, Mm. extent but we've we can do market research um, more on the retail side of the business we can do market research and find out how people are really um, finding out about our products Um, online is certainly much easier like a journey we don't sell products online and so it's that is much more challenging for us we just have to measure engagement and time on page and things like that but we it's very difficult we can't actually measure whether someone has then gone into a pharmacy and bought one of our products based on their engagement online
1: Mm. I know almost for us we've got to the stage where because there are so many different channels there to to an extent the thing that we want to kind of look at at the end of each month is you know we spent $50 insert whatever it was and we ended up with one, two, three, four, five patients from that, and we know that each patient is worth this amount. And is the amount that we're spending ultimately, hopefully a lot less than we're bringing in? Yeah. If it is, then we're confident to step forwards and make little tweaks and then, you know, check against that next month. But sometimes, you know, I, I know for the people that we're talking to, just to keep it really simple. Um, yes. And if that was, you know, if you're not seeing at least that happening, then making some changes um, is, is yeah. a good idea there also. So Yeah.
0: I mean, I think for practitioners, even the simple thing of just asking, <laughs> you know, when, they feel, when a patient comes in for the first time, just having that as part of your, your form that they fill out to say, you know, and many practitioners do do this now, how did you hear about us? Was yes. it online? Was it via a friend? Was it, you know, because of the ad that I put in the local paper or yeah.
2: whatever?
0: Uh, or was it just driving by? But it's yeah. important to collect that data, just taking the time to get someone to actually start collecting that data it's important
1: yeah and i think too we, we found some interesting results with this too paul because we <clears throat> we've realized that we've had to ask one more question beyond that because people often put down there how did you hear about a practice and go mm-hmm. website and then when we ask the next question go how did you hear about our website mm-hmm. go, well, we found you on facebook first and then we went to the website and we got your phone number and came yeah. from there so we really encourage people ask that and yeah. sometimes that might not be on the very first visit when you you know, you've really focused on lots of other things about great rapport and trying to find out what's going on. But as you develop that relationship, you can find out what other ways, you know, because it might be, oh, look, I walked past, but you're talking to me, oh, yeah, I've also got a friend and and they went through those kind of multi-channels and stuff like that too. Yeah. And quite
0: often, to be honest, it's going to be a combination of multiple touch points. And that's when you have this beautiful marketing world where you've got fantastic signage you know you've got a great street frontage um you've got a beautiful ad in the paper um all of your branding is aligned you've got your facebook page happening you're maybe supporting the local footy club whatever um it's a combination of all of those things that but in the back subconsciously in the back of patient's mind they're like oh yeah okay i know that name um and then they feel more confident about going to you because they've seen your name
1: Mm. And there are things, it's, it, you know, I, I've, as obviously I've become super passionate about this in the last kind of decade, but the, the, a lot of those things don't need to be overwhelming and there are lots of very low-cost type sort of options. And, um, but, you know, when we start to do those things, one of the greatest challenges that so many of us has of practitioners is just a predictable flow of new patients. Um, and there are challenges in our modern-day kind of climate, because I want to, you know, it might be a good kind of segue in there too, because... There are lots of forces that kind of feel like they're working against us. Um, you know, a couple of years ago, the process began where there was a government investigation, for lack of a better word, into kind of natural health and its effectiveness. Um, they came out with some recommendations. And this is really important because if you're listening to this now and you might be going, look, this doesn't affect me because I'm not a naturopath. I'm not teaching yoga, those kind of things. There too. I, I, I want to just get you to hit the, you know, the stop button for a moment because you know, certainly we've got lots of chiropractors. Right now, they're doing an investigation into the effectiveness of chiropractic with regards to paediatric care. And if you think that this thing won't come to affect chiropractors as well, then I want you to really think, and I'm the eternal optimist, and I've been involved in politics from day one there too, but can you give a little bit of an update, what happened then, what were their recommendations, where are things up to now, where are they going forwards, and then how do we thrive even in this climate?
0: Yeah, yeah, sure. So as probably all of your listeners are aware, from the 1st of April this year, there were a number of natural therapies um, that no longer receive rebates from private health insurers. Um, And as you mentioned, this was a result of a review by the NHMRC, which is the National Health and Medical Research Council. And they were tasked by the Labor government in 2013 to research the evidence for unregistered um, therapies that were receiving receiving rebates from private health insurers. And the rationale for this initiative was really just to find savings by removing government subsidies for private health insurance for natural therapies. Um, For naturopathy and for Western herbal medicine, what it found was rather than inefficacy, it essentially turned up a lack of publications that met their very, very narrow and specific criteria for the review. And, in fact, the report itself acknowledged that it had several limitations, including this really restrictive evidence research. So, for example, just to um, kind of elaborate on the very narrow scope of the research, they only included systematic reviews. They had to be in English, and they had to be within the last five years. So that meant from 2008 until 2013. And that excluded a significant body of evidence um, and literature. But the main reason um, that, um, that there was seen to be this lack of evidence was that the evidence sought was only for naturopathy and Western herbal medicine as a whole health service. So I'm sure that many of your listeners um, would know that there is just tons and tons of evidence for the way that naturopaths and herbalists practice. So, you know, mm-hmm. naturopaths yeah. use nutritional therapies, they use herbal medicine, and then they use a lot of um, lifestyle interventions. And there is a lot, lot of evidence on all of those mode of treatment. But there isn't so many studies on that whole of practice. And certainly within this really limited criteria um, that the NHMRC required um, there was only one that they looked at and that was from the US um, which showed favourable results for naturopathic practice in the US particularly in the treatment of chronic diseases and that study was excluded because they took the view that naturopathic practice in the US was quite different to naturopathic practice in Australia Mm -hmm. Um, which in fact, the World Naturopathic Federation has concluded that they are comparable. Um, So um, basically, due to this lack of evidence that qualified to their very strict parameters, they found that further evidence is required to estimate the effectiveness of naturopathic practice as practice in Australia today. And the report itself did stress numerous times that these findings should not be taken to infer that um, naturopathic practice and, in fact, the other natural therapies as well are ineffective. It was just that there wasn't enough studies within their very strict scope. Mm. Um, How that then translated to the government policy to scrap funding for rebates is a massive leap. Um, And the government actually went further than that and they banned private health insurers from providing rebates. Wow. Um, I know. So... (laughs) In a nutshell, uh, the review was flawed. They actively excluded thousands of studies demonstrating benefits. International evidence was ignored. And then they made made this what seems like a very, very short-sighted decision to remove these therapies from receiving rebates to save, I think it's about $30 million, which sounds like a lot to you and me. Yeah, but... But in the the budget scheme of things, it's a tiny amount. but one of the things, you know, we have to look at the positives. I'm a bit of an optimist like, like you, Angus. And, um, you know, a crisis does bring people together and mm. I think the, it did unite the industry on this front and the industry did create a campaign to really amplify and spread the message about what was happening to private health insurance because we also felt that the public didn't really understand that this was going to happen. Mm. Um, and neither did a lot of naturopaths, to be honest. Like, it wasn't until... We really started ramping up the message that I think naturopaths didn't realise that this was potentially on the cards. Um, and we did this through a page called Your Health, Your Cho- Choice. And I would encourage everyone who has an interest in protecting, protecting Australia when it comes to having a right to choosing our own health care, mm. follow this page because it really does follow, you know, some of the policies and decisions that are that are happening that could have an impact on our right to choose our own health care. Um, but I do want to really thank the people who... There was over 13,000 people who participated in that campaign and who actually wrote a letter to the Health Minister, Greg Hunt, who wrote to their local LNP ministers and sen- senators and asked for uh, rebates on natural therapies to be restored. Now. We didn't succeed in having that happen. So the the health minister, Greg Hunt, actually had it within his powers to just reinstate naturopathy and Western herbal medicine and other natural therapies if he chose Mm -hmm. to. Um, And so we were putting a lot of pressure on him um, to do that. And I think that the industry really did a fantastic job in getting together and, and putting a huge amount of pressure on the government around this issue. We didn't succeed in having him reverse that decision, but what we did succeed in is that he announced a $2 million updated review and they're going to actually re-examine the therapies which should be eligible for subsidy through private health insurance rebates. And they're also looking at removing um, natural therapies from that banned list. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think we, you know, we can be really proud of that. You know, It just goes to show what you can do. You can move government... Mm -hmm. And all major parties now really recognise that this is an important public issue that isn't going to go away. Um, This re-review will now take about 12 months, but I think that there's some significant things that have changed in this review. Um, One is that we actually have key stakeholders on the review board, which is actually best practice to do that, but they didn't do that the first time around. Um, And we have a fantastic study that's been completed by the Southern Cross University. Um, This is a world first um, systematic scoping study. It's conducted by Professor Stephen Myers and his colleague Vanessa Weigar and it was published earlier this year in February and that is actually on naturopathic whole practice Um, and its findings are very positive as far as naturopathic medicine really being... Being beneficial for a wide range of chronic diseases Um, so there there is a positive um, you know at the end of the day but what I find so frustrating about this decision that was made by the government is that you know we know that the healthcare system in Australia is under an enormous amount of pressure Mm. 63% of Australia's disease burden is chronic disease and And 87% of deaths in Australia today are caused by chronic disease. 50% of Australians currently have a chronic disease like cancer, cardiovascular disease, arthritis, back problems, respiratory disorders, dementia, diabetes. The list goes on and on, as you know. And according to the World Health Organisation, 80% of these diseases and premature deaths can actually be prevented purely by lifestyle choices, Um, and in particular, they cited by not smoking, by exercising and by having a good diet, 80% of these chronic diseases could be avoided and it is a massive burden. Um, When you look at the global costs of healthcare, 17.9% of global spending is on healthcare
2: Mm.
0: and 80% of that is on fighting the burden of chronic disease. and what the government in Australia have done is to save this piddling little amount, $30 million in the whole okay. scheme of things, is actually penalise the very people who are being proactive when it comes to preventing um, and treating and also treating chronic disease. Um, you know, these are the people who do Pilates and go to yoga and who look, look after themselves. We know that 44% of Australians see a natural healthcare practitioner practitioner to help manage chronic disease. Um, naturopaths are in the top four, along with chiropractors and massage therapists and acupuncturists. And we should actually be rewarding these people for being proactive in their health rather than penalising them. Um, and you know what Australia needs now in healthcare is to work together with um, natural healthcare practitioners who are actually the experts in lifestyle medicine and who have the time and the expertise to, to spend with patients, to help coach them and mentor them to make significant behavioural changes that can make a massive difference in, you know, um, relieving the load of chronic disease on our healthcare system.
1: It, um, yeah, as you mentioned, the, the people most perfectly positioned to make these changes, I think, you know, certainly my understanding is, you know, our general practitioners, certainly here in Australia, they're just not equipped to give that lifestyle advice you know they don't have the training in many cases they're wonderfully trained in pharmaceutical care but when it comes to lifestyle advice that kind of care they're too they're often the first to admit that they're you know they're not positioned to to do that too so i wonder this so yeah. um as far as you know our audience at the moment now helping to support things are there things that they can do now so you mentioned the your health your choice is that's a website or a, a Facebook page.
0: I so that's a Facebook page, and um, yeah, they like I said, they really keep you up to date with all yep. of the latest um, happenings in the healthcare space, and where there are things that can be having an impact on our choices in healthcare. And mm-hmm. they also have a website, so i encourage people to go and have a look if they really want to stay informed. Great. Right. One of the other things that we are, are working on. Um, is I think one of the key issues for naturopathic practice in Australia is that there is an underlying lack of government recognition
2: mm.
0: and that stems from a lack of government understanding. They just, there's massive knowledge gaps when it comes to policymakers around the definition of a naturopath, you know, their extent of practice, the evidence base, and actually the real world effectiveness of naturopathic practice. And one of the things that we can do to help remedy this is provide an official framework for for policy makers to really understand naturopathy is something that's called a health technology assessment Mm -hmm. and, um, or a HTA for short. So a health technology assessment is a gold standard used by governments and the World Health Organization when evaluating a health profession and making decisions about the role that that profession plays in a healthcare system. Um, So it outlines the efficacy, um, safety, evidence base, costs, the practice of that profession. Um, It would be a significant document. So it's like a 400-page textbook. um, that talks about multiple practice and all of those things. And funding would be needed to continue to work on a HTA in Australia. And the industry is working on this in the background. Um, We would hope to have it published by 2020. Um, And in the coming weeks, we'll be sharing more information on how the profession and the industry can really help to support the development of a health technology assessment. Because I really believe that this is a document. It's very much needed. I don't think we can be complacent about naturopathic practice in Australia and this is a document that has the potential to influence both Australian and also um, global health policy when it comes to, to natural medicine.
1: Yeah, lots happening. I'll make sure that we get some links. And so if you're kind of driving along yeah. listening to this at the moment, I'll have you head on over to the show notes. We'll have all links for where people can stay updated as well. In, in kind of yeah, finishing one things up, cautious of your time today, the two, So for those practitioners that are out there at the moment that may well be feeling the pinch a little bit because people are, you know, thinking, you know, what I used to be able to get a rebate back for my uh, naturopathic care, you know, for my other kind of complementary health care. I'm not getting that now. What, you know, you've got this wonderful background in marketing and sales that we talked about. Now, how do we continue to thrive regardless of that regardless of the pressures that might come upon us from an insurance from third parties all those kind of things there as well what do we do right now because people on the ground that you know i need my practice to just keep on running what what advice and steps would you give them
0: yeah i mean it's very interesting isn't it i think um the anecdotally what we're hearing from the sales team is that it's a real mixed bag out there Mm -hmm. you know we have practitioners who say has not has not made a blip in my business, Um, I'm booked out, hasn't made any difference at all. And other people saying, no, I'm definitely getting families who are saying, sorry, I can't afford to come anymore because of, you know, losing the private health insurance. So there's always a bit of a mixed bag as to Mm -hmm. how people are impacted. And I've actually, I mean, I've thought about this a lot as far as I have visited probably hundreds, if not thousands, of clinics. Around Australia, and looked at what is the difference between those practitioners who, even when things like private health insurance rebates are gone, you know, we were in the lead up to election and people just stopped spending because they're uncertain, house prices are dropping, there's always stuff going on mm-hmm. that could be impacting your business. But there seems to be some people who, no matter what, their business is thriving. And, you know, what is it that is that differentiates those practitioners from the rest of people, uh, rest of the practitioners. And um, I think that it comes down to a couple of things. Um, one is confidence. The practitioners that I see that are always successful, they have an air of confidence about them. They're, they're passionate and enthusiastic, but they're confident in what they do. and they're curious, they're always learning, whether that's learning about marketing and sales or learning about, um, you know, clinical practice or learning about managing staff, they're always learning because they're always curious.
2: Mm.
0: And the way that that manifests too, I was thinking about this, you know, I was listening to your podcast with Damien Christoph. I've known Damien for a long, long time and he's Mm. an amazing practitioner an amazing speaker and he was giving a great podcast on how to drive your business doing seminars and presentations. And I thought, you know, this stuff is just gold for for practitioners. But I wonder how many of your listeners, when they're listening to that podcast, are actually actively listening. Like that is, are they sitting down with Mm -hmm. a pen and paper and writing down all those nuggets of gold that Damien had Or are they driving along listening to it, which is good, like you're still Mm. learning. Um, But unless you actually take the time to sit down, that's fine, listen to it in the car, but then if you think, wow, this guy's really got something here that I think I can use in my practice, Mm. then set aside the time in your diary to go, I'm going to listen to that, actively listen and make notes about the nuggets that Damien has shared, and then I'm going to plan. How I'm going to do my own presentations and seminars, and then I'm actually going to act and I'm going to do it. And I just wonder mm. how many practitioners that have listened to that podcast have actually taken action. And the key word there is is action. Mm. Do something. Um, and I would say, I would suggest that it would be less than five yeah. percent. And they are five percent who are thriving yeah. because they are brave enough to do something. But the thing is, is that Damien, he comes across as someone, I think, who is naturally like that. He's naturally curious. He's a go-getter. He's naturally confident. He's a good presenter. Maybe he wasn't. Maybe he learnt that. But I think that sometimes you can look at those people and go, oh, wow, like they've got, they just exude confidence. I don't know if I can ever do that. That is learned behaviour. Mm. You can change. You can learn Um, anything (laughs) and you can learn to have that amount of confidence as well and so my advice would be to take action do stuff and and, you know like we said it to um, earlier today talking about marketing um, have a plan act on that plan review it and have a you know tweak the plan and then act again and just keep doing that and the successful practitioners keep doing that They have a hunger to learn. Um, They have a growth mindset. And I honestly think it's as, I know that that sounds simple, um, but it can be just as simple as that. Be brave enough to start something. Don't worry about getting stuff wrong and making mistakes. you would learn from that experience. You know, um, that's great. The more mistakes you make, the more you realise, okay, that's not the thing that works. This is the thing that works. So in, and I don't think it matters what is happening in the environment around you. If you can continue to do that, you will be successful.
1: Yeah, I think that's a beautiful piece of gold to finish with there, Paula. And it is, it's my greatest drive is to work out what we can do to get people to be taking the next logical step in terms of moving forwards. Because information is fabulous, but without action, um, you know, without us kind of taking that next step, and I totally agree with you. I mean, I think five percent was you being incredibly generous, which is depressing on one mm-hmm. side for me. You know, <laughs> the that we're this too, but it, it's it's okay. We all go. Uh, you're
0: it. making a big difference.
1: <laughs> <laughs> well, we, we're not going to give up with it um, as as well. Look, on behalf of the Marketing Your Practice podcast, I really want to thank you and in in, in totality, Metagenics for. Uh, the constant contribution that you have back into us as practitioners for the tireless work and I've got to think of the thousands of hours that you must have put in with dealing with these regulatory changes that happened and what you will continue to do as well so it makes an enormous difference to us um, on the front line whether we deal with the people to know that we have a company like Metagenics behind us supporting us and having our back um, because sometimes in small business it feels very uh, isolating there too. So, on behalf of Adio Media, the Marketing Your Practice podcast, a huge thanks to Metagenics and Paula to you in particular too. Thanks for being so generous with us today. So, any final parting words to our audience today?
0: Um, oh, look, I mean, thank you for those kind words, Angus, but I think this really, the relationship that we have with practitioners is really a partnership and, you know, we can't. Live up to our mission of helping people live happier, healthier lives with without the amazing work that you guys do. So, I think that you know we're all in this together and um, we're stronger together.
1: Yeah, great. Well, Paula, thanks so much for being so generous with us today. Um, and uh, hopefully, I, I feel like there's definitely a round two in here. I've got a page full of questions I had down here, that we got to like a third of them, so um, we, we might talk about that sometime in the future. So, enjoy That's the rest of your day. Look forward to seeing you soon. Thanks, Paula.
0: Okay. Bye-bye. Thank you.
1: If you enjoyed listening to this podcast, you have to come and check out the Community Influencer Program. It's my monthly coaching program where we take all this material and I'll work one-on-one with you to apply, implement, systematize and help guide you and your practice to the next level. Now, you can join me on over at adiomedia.com forward slash join. That's adiomedia.com forward slash join. I'd love to see you in there.